Well, good morning. It's very nice to be with you. Thank you for keeping inviting me back. Um, it's very kind of you. And thank you for another really interesting subject. Um, so this year, we're looking at the period between the Old and New Testaments. Um, and if you are interested in this topic, I am going to just scratch the very surface, particularly over some kind of the Jewish groups that are around. There will be some history, but that's okay, right? Um, I highly recommend there's a series of podcasts called BEMA, B-E-M-A, and there's a whole series in there about the intertestament period and all the different Jewish groups that are around. I highly recommend those. Um, and if you want a book, there's a Zondervan book called The New Testament in Antiquity, which is also really good. Um, so those are some of my sources. And I don't know when it happens. I think it's different for everybody. Um, and I think it depends on your circumstances. So I grew up in Woolpit and I went to school in Stow Upland. So because the school had a big catchment area, we were the far, the far side of the catchment area. But a lot of my friends lived the opposite side of the catchment area. So most of them were kind of 40 minutes drive from my house through back roads. And at school, that was fine because you saw them during the day. But as we got older and we started you know, going around to other people's houses, um, and when you're 14, 15 and you can't drive, you obviously rely on other people to get you 40 minutes through the back roads. Um, and of course, it was always my dad that was dragged out to collect me. And I would tell him, wait in the car. Um, and he would for a little while, but um, I'm normally late. And eventually there'd be a knock on the door. And if you've, I don't know if you know my dad, he's quite hard to dislike, unless you're related to him. But um, he is quite hard to dislike. And my friends really liked him. And oh, Mr. Harkner, come in. And he'd be like, oh, call me Keith. And they'd be like, don't get on first name terms. This is not the moment when you're 15. Would you like a drink, Mr. Harkner? Come in, sit down. I'm like, no, you're supposed to wait in the car. And then later on, um, as I got older, and I'm a young one in my year, so I could never drive. It was all my friends that could drive. Um, and then people, you know, you'd go out and then people would drive me home and it was my dad's bedside light that would click off as the car drove up and I got out. My mum would be fast asleep, she wouldn't care, but my dad would be the one waiting up for me. He would be the one lying awake, worrying about whether I had got home. And fast forward a few or several years, and my dad's now over 80, and um, if he is coming over to mine, or we're supposed to be meeting up, and he is late, and he has not messaged me, then I am the one thinking, oh, what on earth has happened to him? Where is he? There is no point in ringing his mobile, because it's still on silent from six weeks before, and he's forgotten to turn it back on. There is no point in messaging him, because he will not hear it. You just have to sit and wait and think, I wonder if this is the time that he's had that accident. Um, but there's that switch that happens, isn't there? And I think it's the same for lots of us, and it depends on who we are in our circumstances for when that happens. And that's what we're looking at this morning, the silence of waiting. And we're looking at this long period of waiting between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I was going to make you all turn to Matthew 1 and then flip back and then see what happened. Um, but you might have a title page for the New Testament. You might have a blank space. But that blank space represents 400 years of silence from God. 400 years from the last prophet until the beginning of the New Testament. And lots happens in that period. And so we might need a bit of a history lesson. Um, 
Now, many years ago, I used to help run the Cambridge branch of the Young Archaeologists Club, um, which is for 8 to 16-year-olds. And every Christmas, we used to play a game called Black Death, Pass the Parcel. Uh, now, inside the layers of Pass the Parcel was a jelly baby. Uh, and if it was a black jelly baby that you got, then you had to die in a very horrendous way. Um, and you were out of the game. If you got any other coloured jelly baby, you were allowed to stay in the game and carry on with the Pass the Parcel, which was usually the winner was a chocolate rat. Um, and now, clearly, Uh, This is fine until you play it on a Saturday during term time and the room that you're playing it in is right next to the archaeology department, University of Cambridge Library and every time the music stops there's eight ten-year-olds chanting death, death, death really loudly. Um, So I hope that And now that we know that Pass the Parcel is a university-acknowledged method of learning history, I thought we should play a game of Pass the Parcel um, to learn these periods of history. Uh, So I'll leave it to you to decide whether you want to chant for death or there is no jelly babies. There there is chocolate, but there are no jelly babies. Um, So uh, I believe we have some music, uh, which hopefully we can have a... a, I mean, whoever is in charge can stop it whenever you like. So we're going to start here. Thank you very much. And um, let's see what happens. (laughs) Whoa, here we go. You can take the first layer off. It's exciting, isn't it? I thought, how am I going to make 400 years of history be marginally exciting? I won't make you read out the bits of paper. This is mostly just a test that I managed to do it in the right order. But hopefully you have the Persian Empire in there. Yes, the Persian Empire and some chocolate. Excellent. So this is actually the end of, um, of that, the Old Testament section. So the Old Testament ends with these books of the prophets telling how the children of Israel were taken off into Babylon um, and that their armies destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The Babylon army was then defeated by the Persians... And that's who this one is about. Who uh, The Persians, as a political move, let people go back to their homelands. So some of the Jews started to return to Jerusalem. And we read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and lots of people thought that these years that the people had spent in exile away from Jerusalem was a punishment. And that they should then uh, study the law, study the scriptures, and keep the law really carefully. So you can read about this um, in Ezra and Nehemiah, about um, Nehemiah building the walls. um, And it's possibly during this time that synagogues started as well, as Jews started to be pushed out of their homelands. And then the last prophet and the silence begins. The silence will now be broken by the music. Oh. <laughs> Do I have to remind you it's a hot potato, like we always minded when we were children? <laughs> yeah, good point. I do want. No, it's fine. You can keep the paper. Oh, so you should have um, the Ptolemaic kingdom. Yes, excellent. I did it right. So this is the beginning of what's called the Hellenistic period. So the Hellenism is about Greeks. Um, Interestingly, it was the Romans that called them Greeks, and the Greeks call themselves Hellas, which is why it's Hellenistic. I never knew that until this week. 
Um, so you might have heard of Alexander the Great. There is a mosaic of him. And his aim, his big aim, is to defeat the Persians, which he does. And he has this massive empire. When he dies, um, he divides his kingdom up into four, and um, Israel and Jerusalem is uh, being ruled by Ptolemy, the, uh, in, who is from Egypt. And mostly during this time, the Jews are left alone. Um, they're seen as a bit of a temple state, and there are thousands of Jews that live all throughout Egypt at that point. Now, it's about 20 Jews in Egypt, but at this point, there were thousands of Jews living all throughout that, that area. And some Jews start to take on this Greek way of life. And that the, the Alexander the Great brought in loads of new things. He brought in um, education. So he brought in a whole new method of educating people. He brought in healthcare. He um, brought in the theatre and entertainment and lots of athletics. Um, and so Alexander the Great brings those things in and they kind of stay throughout his kingdom. Uh, and the Jews start to use Greek more commonly in this point of time as well. So it's the beginning of the Hellenistic kingdom, and now it's time for the music. <laughs> oh, exciting. So just to make it a bit more exciting and to increase our layers, I actually split the Hellenistic kingdom into two. So hopefully you've got the Seleucids. Excellent. So um, in this point of time, Jerusalem is right in the middle of an area that is really hotly contested. That might sound familiar. Um, And at this point, Hellenism is much more strongly uh, put into force. So it it's, you know, it becomes that everybody has to follow this kind of Greek way of life. And this coin is a guy called Antiochus. He's Antiochus IV. Um, and he carried on what the rulers before him done, which was to accept bribes in order to put people that he wanted to be the high priest in Jerusalem. But this guy went a bit further, and he took on the name Epiphanes, which is the same root as the word Epiphany, so God on earth, this guy felt that that was who he was. He tried to go in and conquer Egypt, got in a bit of trouble with the Romans, and then Antiochus IV decided the big problem was with the ethnic minorities. This might sound familiar again to you. Um, The Jews tried to rebel, but this guy sacked Jerusalem. He destroyed the walls, he looted the temple, and he sacrificed pigs on the altar in the temple. And at this point, Jews are forbidden from practicing their religion under death if they did. Everybody had to worship the Greek gods. This is probably not the moment for the jaunty music to start, but hit the music. So hopefully you have the Hasmonean period. Oh, excellent. Um, so this period starts with a revolt. Um, people felt that Antiochus had pushed them too far. And there's an old priest called Mattathias who leads a revolt with his sons, which my dad told me I had to mention this book, My Glorious Brothers, by Howard Fast. You'll see this is, a, this is actually the cover of the book that I have um, by the author of Spartacus. Um, 
So that's all about the Maccabean revolt, it's called. So Mattathias dies. His son, Judas, carries on the war. And Judas has got this nickname of Maccabeus, which means hammer. So it might give you some idea of what he was like. Um, And then at the beginning of this period in 164, they go back into the temple. They cleanse it. They restart the ceremonies and the daily burnt offerings. And that, that, that revolt, the Maccabean revolt, is what the Jews remember in Hanukkah. So the idea was that um, the, they went into the temple after it had been under siege and the lamps were still burning. So Hanukkah comes from this period of time. So um, most of Mattathias's sons died uh, during this revolt. One of them was called Simon. That's where the name Hasmonean comes from. Again, this is all exciting. I never knew any of this. Um, you've made me learn things. This is good. Um, and so that was the beginning of this Hasmonean period. And during this time, unbelievably perhaps, the rulers become more and more corrupt. Um, they become more and more powerful and they become less and less moral. And actually, the the Jewish kingdom splits, uh, and some people are living um, in Israel, in this land that God has promised them. But some of them are living right across the whole region. Remember, we thought about those those Jews in Egypt. And some of the Jews wanted to keep their Greek ways that they'd learned, all these good things, you know, education, health care athletics, theatre, apparently these are good things, Um, but some of the Jews wanted to keep hold of those, and some of the Jews said, no, we've got to make a complete break, we must get rid of those Hellenistic, those Greek ways. The Hasmoneans were really powerful. There was a group of people called the Hasidim. They were people who wanted to make Jews great again. They were after religious purity. And some of them were calling out the Hasmoneans and the power that they had. There was lots of internal struggle. There were lots of disagreements. People were jostling for power, religious influence, or authority. Some people were adding in new traditions. And there was these different groups of Jews were starting to spring up. The Sadducees the Pharisees, the Zealots, people that we start to meet in the New Testament. Actually, the majority of people didn't belong to any group. They were too busy looking after their families, uh, and they had enough on their plate with providing for that and paying taxes because of the next group. So let's hit the music. (laughs) There was some cheating going on there. We have the Romans, excellent. Um, so uh, I had to put this is Pompey, and this is one of my. Fa- he shouldn't be my favourite. I really hate the Romans because they're very boring. Well, as an archaeologist, I hate the Romans in Britain because I really like the Iron Age and I really like Boudicca. But um, this is my favourite portrait of a Roman emperor. Um, apparently, they, this is when this is Pompey the Great. Um, he was the the Roman general that took over um, Israel and Judea. Sorry, and he was. Um, this is a, the, the portrait that they made. To, to make him look horrible with piggy eyes. It's called piggy eyes and a cow's lick. And this is like, this is, this is Roman um, propaganda. Anyway, that's Pompey the Great. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't actually brilliant, but he, he was pretty good. So he, uh, th- this was the beginning. Actually, because of all these internal divisions in the Jewish kingdom, the Jews ended up asking the Romans to come and help out. Um, and so Pompey came and helped and he brought Roman rule that lasted for 400 years. So right past the time of Jesus... Um, And he took the city, and actually when Pompey came, he took Jerusalem, 
He went into the temple and he even went into the most holy place. And some historians say that up to 12,000 Jews died during this one-day siege that Pompey did of Jerusalem. Maybe it was fair to do a not very nice portrait of him. Then on the right is Herod the Great. Um, There were lots of Herods. Herod, uh, that they ruled as kings. Um, So the Romans didn't really understand why the Jews resented them, but they also didn't trust the Jews And this is all simmering beneath the surface. So the Roman rulers decided who the high priest in the temple was going to be. And they collected taxes for Rome. And Herod the Great, who reigned from about 37 BC to 4 BC, so right up until when we think Jesus is born, he did whatever the emperor told him to do. So we have one more round. Hit the music. Thank you. So hopefully you have a small box. So just don't open the box yet, but you should on the outside have Galatians 4 verse 4. Excellent. Phew. So Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So this is the right time. When the right time came, it took all of this history, all of these layers and layers of history of silence of waiting. It took all of that, but when the right time came, God sent his son. So can you open your box and see, let's see what's inside it. Hopefully inside there is a torch that is on. Yeah. So that's yours to keep. It's Wilkinson's finest. (laughs) Um, And that torch has been shining the whole time that we've been playing that game. We couldn't always see it but the torch was shining. It was wrapped in those layers of history. And the same thing was happening all through that, that, those 400 years. God had been at work. He had been there behind the scenes, working it all out. He couldn't always be seen at the time. And this was the right time. But up until that point, there had been nothing. Silence. The void. And that's what had happened throughout that 400-year period. From God, there had been silence. No prophets. Nobody saying what God's heart was for his people. Nothing. Silence. And it must have been really hard. And I wonder what all those generations of people thought as they were praying and praying and searching their scriptures and looking at the prophecies and Daniel and all of these things that they were thinking what they have to go through until we get there. And some of them clearly went their own way and that waiting was too much. And they went away from God and towards seeking out their own power or corruption or greed or whatever they wanted. And some were faithful. And they listened to God. And they carried on through it all. Studying the scriptures. Holding on to the promises. And some gave up. Maybe even those ones that had started out really strong and hanging on to those promises. But then bit by bit, as they saw their promises fade, they thought, day by day, day, month by month, year by year, the silence And the waiting wore them down. 
the unanswered prayers perhaps, the waiting and waiting in silence. Waiting for God to save them. Against all of that history, all of those rulers and the power and corruption that was happening, everything that was happening in the world, they waited. 400 years. I don't know if you've ever been waiting for God. Have you ever been pouring your heart out to him, praying, waiting, watching, and you just feel like you can't hear him? I don't know if you've ever felt like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and not really going anywhere. I don't know if you've been in the middle of a silence and you've wondered why God doesn't act even though you've been faithful. Jason Boyer, in his book, O Me of Little Faith, tells a story like I told at the beginning about waiting for his father when they go out fishing. He says, waiting for my father is horrible. When he's late, the only thing I can focus on is his absence. My mind races. Nothing else matters. The weight of my father's absence during these times is far more powerful than the calm and comfortable experience of his presence. That unsettled sense of incompleteness and unknowing is one of the most intense feelings I can ever have. My relationship with God follows the same pattern. And maybe you sympathise. Maybe you too know that sense of waiting. Waiting in the silence. And all you can feel like is that it feels as if God is not there. I think what Boyett says in that book is right. There is a weight in waiting. Waiting can feel dark and lonely and really heavy. We carry it with us. And maybe you feel it too. Maybe you feel God's silence thick and heavy. And maybe you've been waiting for God to act, for him to speak, for him to respond to what you've prayed for. But you wait and wait. And you might not fully believe it right now, but God is at work. That torch that was on is the same in our lives. God is at work now. Through the layers of history, the light still shines in the darkness. And it's as true now as it was then. When we don't feel it in the weight of waiting, the light still shines in the darkness. God is at work. He's moving. He's bringing everything together. You might not feel it, but it is happening. And we don't live in a world that does waiting very well. Most of our lives are spent avoiding waiting, avoiding queues, avoiding the traffic, getting the fast track, the self-service, wherever we can, filling our lives so that we don't have to wait. But what I'm learning is that waiting time doesn't have to be wasting time. Maybe through your waiting... You've lost sight of how God might be working. You've lost sight of the, God, of the light that God does bring. So it might be helpful for us to look together at the time when the waiting came to an end. So here, after all of this history, this 400 years of waiting, what happens next? And amongst all these internal divisions, the Jewish groups, different groups competing for power and authority. Some saying Greek ways are really good, others saying we need to cut ourselves off and make ourselves more pure. But there are still a few people, a few faithful people remaining. 
And we're going to look at the first couple of chapters of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, turn it on. Um, And we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 from verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And I found it really interesting to go back to those well-trodden Christmas stories and rethink of them in the light of what we've just learned about this 400-year period of silence. And Luke tells us right there that this is the days of Herod, and Herod was a tyrant. We've heard about him. He was mean. He was violent. He taxed the people to, their, to the extreme so that he could give gifts to make a name for himself. He spent his reign concerned about plots against him and trying to get rid of those people before they got rid of him. And the people must still have been wondering, when is this all going to end? 400 years of silence. And Luke makes a point here of telling us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. But Zechariah is a priest, so surely we would expect that. But we know now that this whole system has become corrupt from other people putting people in positions of power. We discover about high priests bribing their way to the top and families taking on more and more power for themselves or Romans putting people in charge. And so then Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous. Here are the faithful few. But they're old. Beyond the point when they can have a child... They're going about their lives, serving. They're presumably of good standing in their area. We hear after John the Baptist is born how the whole village comes out to celebrate with them. So they're carrying on, studying, serving, living with purpose, despite everything that's going on around them. They might not understand exactly what's happening to them, but they're waiting. They're not wasting time. They've got waiting time. They're waiting, waiting for God to save his people and waiting for their personal prayers to be answered as well. 
And then we're told in Luke that Zechariah is serving, uh, verse 8, while he's serving as a priest before God. And then his division is called up and he is called by Lot to go up and, ser- and, and do the burnt offering, burn the incense, sorry. And this is probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Priests didn't retire, so um, the, he, he, Zachariah was old, we're told, so he's been there for a long time. And here, in the midst of his normal, everyday service, his division is called, and he is pulled by lot, his winning lottery ticket. So he gets to go in and do this incense offering. And there's something else unusual in there. The angel of the Lord, the angels are going to have a child, and that child is going to be really important. And those words that the angel quotes, he quotes to them from the very last book of the Old Testament. From the very last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. From the very last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. God's silence has been broken with the words that he started the silence with. That, those ver- that verse about uh, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, that comes from the book of Malachi. Here he starts the New Testament with the same promise that he closed out those, that the old. And suddenly, the name of Z- that Zachariah's meaning, the na- meaning of his name becomes massively important. Zachariah means the Lord has remembered. And there's loads to this story, and I'm not going to go into it now. So please go home and read, the, not right now, um, wait a few minutes. Uh, but go and read the rest of Luke 1 and read Luke 2 and think of it in these, uh, this term of God's silence being broken at this point about this important child being born. The, the next story that we're told is about another really important child being born. If you're not familiar with it, then you will be over the next month. The angel comes to Mary to tell her that she's pregnant and she's going to have a son and this baby will grow up to save the entire world. The floodgates of these angels have been opened and now it feels like they can't stop after 400 years of silence. We keep reading in Luke and John the Baptist is born and then Jesus is born and angels come again to the shepherds. 400 years of silence are broken in the most dramatic way. So the angel and Mary, the shepherds. And then if you keep reading at Luke, when Jesus is 40 days old, he's presented to the temple. And two more old people, Simeon and Anna, get to see God's promises come about. And it's incredible After 400 years of silence, God speaks. He starts something new. Who does he come to? A faithful old couple who've all but given hope, all but given up hope that their dreams will be realised. A couple there, faithful but almost without hope. A couple with nothing left to give. A couple just carrying on with their lives, waiting, not wasting time. Who does God come to? A teenager, unmarried, not very high standing in society. A group of shepherds going about their their work, being told that a new king, a saviour for everyone has been born and they should go and worship him. 
after all those years of waiting, everything had moved according to God's purposes. And at the fullness of time, as it says in Galatians, God spoke. And God could have chosen anyone. He could have chosen politicians or governors or wealthy people or people with power and influence. He could have chosen people who are massively important Jews, who are really, really religious. He could have chosen people who were massively gifted at writing poetry or songs or music. He could have chosen religious leaders or people who are really clever, but he chose these people. There weren't any mistakes. The angels didn't suddenly turn up in a field and think, ah, wrong field, should be over there. After all that silence, these were the people that were chosen. They were chosen while they were going about their everyday lives. In the weight of waiting, they were chosen. And we can be too. In the middle of our waiting, in the middle of our doubt, when we don't think it's possible anymore, Surely God's given up on our prayers. And that's when God shows up. And most of these people were just faithfully living out their lives, waiting time, not wasting time. And maybe like Zechariah, God is calling you to just keep on keeping on. To go to your work, to do your job, whether that's in your house or with your family or volunteering somewhere, whether you're in college or you're in paid work, Maybe God is calling you to just turn up day by day, faithfully, to do that. And Zachariah must have turned up every day for years before this happened. Elizabeth was living her life with purpose, even though her prayers, hadn't been, her prayers had been answered with not yet, not yet, not yet. The shepherds must have spent night after night looking after their sheep. For generations, perhaps, out on those hills, doing their jobs. Until one day, when everything is different. And what about us? Where are we treading water in our lives? Because we're not moving forward. Maybe the answer that you get is not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Just like that torch that was on, the light is still shining. God's still at work. Even if you can't feel it, even in your waiting, in the weight of your waiting. And Jason Boyett ends that chapter I read from earlier with this story. He talks about the neighborhood ice cream van. He says, on a summer day, you can hear the neighborhood ice cream van for a long time before it finally arrives. It plays Pop Goes the Weasel on an endless loop. When the first notes of the song begin, blocks away, you know the truck is in the neighborhood but you can't see it and you're never sure when you should stop your game of football and run to the curb. So you wait and wait. Finally, the truck turns the corner and that faint melody becomes so loud you can't hear anything else. Faith is like that. It's believing that God will arrive even if you can barely hear his song right now. And how about you? As we get into this festive season, how is your faith doing? Where are you waiting? Where are you waiting for God and not entirely convinced that he's going to show up? Where in your life can you barely hear his song? Where do you want him to act 
Where are you waiting? Where are you wasting time? And if you feel the weight of that silence, if you feel the weight of that waiting, can I encourage you to look at those first few chapters of Luke. Look at these people that God breaks his silence with. Young people, old people, people of good position, people of no position, people getting on with their jobs and their lives. These are the people that God breaks his silence with, people like us. So this week, for the rest of this year, be expectant. This week, for the rest of this year, be listening. This week, this Christmas time, wait. Wait with purpose. Wait in the silence. Whatever you're waiting for, whatever or whoever you've been praying for, listen out for his song in the weight of the silence. Can we pray together? Loving Father, thank you that your light still shines in the darkness. Thank you that you are working out your plans and your purposes, even when we can't see them. Waiting is hard, Father, and it's heavy and it's dark and it's lonely. And for those of us here that are in that period of waiting, I pray that you would draw near to us. Help us to be expectant. Help us to be listening. Father, for those of us here that are not waiting, would you help us to be an encouragement to those of us that are? Not to just come out with the right verse, but to wait alongside our brothers and sisters in church. Father, may we share our waiting time together. Help us to be expectant. Help us to listen to you. Help us to listen out for your song. Even when we can barely hear it, would you help us to listen and to wait for you? And thank you for what you are going to do in our lives and the difference that we are going to make in the worlds that we live in. And we thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus, that at the right time it all happened, that that silence was broken. Help us to remember that again this Christmas time. And pray on this in Jesus' name. Amen.